0: We're in week two of our analysis of this movie, The Jesus Tomb, The Jesus Family Tomb. And I want to point out that I hope to finish tonight, if at all possible, with talking about the claims of the documentary and reserve a couple things for either next week or later week, which is I actually want to talk about evidences for the resurrection, which is really the thing that got us started on this topic. What evidence do we have for the resurrection? We're spending the last week and this week kind of taking apart the movie a little bit that claims that it found the bodily remains of Christ. But really, after we're done taking apart this movie and all the sensation that's around it, we probably should just spend some time strengthening our own faith about things that are actually true as opposed to factual leaps that are made. So tonight I hope to show you some of those factual leaps. Okay, So we're going to kind of review a little bit from last week, but I'm going to set up some stuff. First of all, I want to tell you there's a lot of sensation about the movie itself. I was telling some people before we started tonight that if you look at the blogosphere and all the blogs that are being written, there are hundreds and hundreds of articles being posted every day with information going back and forth about this movie. It is making an impact and it is a sensation, but I don't really want to be sensationalist. I know there's going to be at least 30 or 40 books written on this in the Christian bookstores that you'll be able to pick up and read. The reason I'm doing it early, even before any books have been written, It's because this issue will die away pretty quickly. Most people won't care, but they will remember just a small bit of it. Most of the people that will ask will say, oh yeah, didn't they find his bones or something like that? And that's about going to be the depth of their knowledge. And I'm hoping that at least some of the materials that we're putting together will serve as a reference. One other qualification I want to make, just to give you an idea of what even qualifies us to discuss this, I've been studying the topic for the last four or five days pretty closely. I've probably spent about 20 hours collecting information, reviewing the documentary footage, What I've done in case you want it, it's not ready yet, but I've actually watched the documentary and transcribed it line by line. And then added my notes on top of the transcript of the documentary. You're going to see tonight why I would do that. A lot of times we could just analyze something like the Da Vinci Code when we did that, we just picked out some passages and analyzed them. I believe the documentary hides so much in its wording, there's so many leaps in just one sentence of its wording, that you almost have to analyze it the way I would as a lawyer in a deposition transcript. To have the transcript in front of you, read each word, and then assess how that proves or disproves your case and their case. And that's kind of what we've done. Okay, this, by the way, is a picture of the tomb. It's properly referred to as the Talpiot tomb. Okay, Talpiot, T-A-L-P-I-O-T, because it was found in Talpiot, a suburb just outside of the old city of Jerusalem. All right, so this is the tomb. It was discovered in 1980 when they were gonna build some apartment buildings, and they started blasting away, and this tomb was uncovered. So the documentary makes the point, and it's probably true, that because there was pressure to keep the construction moving, they brought in archeologists who diagrammed the inside of the tomb, Found ten ossuaries, which are the bone boxes we described last week, and took them out and put them into the warehouse where they're stored by the Israel Authority of the Antiquities, or the Israel—is excuse me—the Israeli Antiquities Authority. So there was really no reason to to keep the tomb open, because they had taken out what they needed. They cataloged it and they put it away, and then the construction continues. So that's the tomb. Now, why talk about the documentary? Another, another. uh, This is an ad that I saw. I think it's a joke, but the number is correct. It says here 4.1 million heretics tuned in. Thank you, Jim Cameron, and it's supposed to be from the Discovery Channel, you know, kind of sending him a thank you card. The true part of this slide is 4.1 million people did watch it, okay? What does that mean? Doesn't sound like a lot of people. 6.1 million people watched the Oscars, okay? So that's just kind of give you an idea. Like if you're gonna watch something like a major uh, event a great television show might attract two and a half to three million people. So if you're a cable television program, that's number one. Number two, you're on the Discovery Channel, which we know is like life's most exciting channel on cable, right? So if you're if you're doing something like on cable, you're on the Discovery Channel, to get 4.1 million people to watch anything is a big feat. To their credit, the Discovery Channel is not issuing a bunch of press releases congratulating themselves yet because there's so much controversy about it. They've just decided to let it, you know, just stand without any comment. It's a big number, everyone knows it, they don't have to say anything. The other thing that's interesting is, maybe due to the controversy, maybe not, they've decided not to re-air it. So we don't know what that means yet, okay? They were scheduled to do another couple, you know how the Discovery Channel is, like they'll have like, you know, they'll watch the whale thing like 20 times in a month or whatever, they're not gonna re-air it, okay? So what do we know? Last week, we made this statement, which I think is true. We said that Orthodox Christianity rests upon the belief that Jesus died for the sins of all mankind, conquered death through bodily resurrection. Almost every scholar in Christianity agrees if this movie is true, it would defeat a major claim in Christianity because we believe in a bodily resurrection and a bodily ascension. Last week, we studied this passage from 1 Corinthians 15, Making sure that we were clear that the theology of our Orthodox Christian beliefs is that it is a bodily resurrection. If Christ's remains are somewhere in a tomb, that's going to be a major problem and we can't escape it as the doctor- documentary suggests by just believing in a spiritual ascension or a spiritual resurrection. There is a noted scholar in the, in the documentary that says if we found the body of Christ, it wouldn't destroy my faith. But he is from the Jesus Seminar, which is a very, very liberal group of Christians that are trying to reinterpret Christianity in a different light, more of a historical light than a theological and accurate light, in my opinion. So let's get that straight. If they're right, they're right. Okay? I'm not going to dispute it. This is an ossuary. The practice was, for a very short period of time, probably maybe for about 100 years, up to about 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jews left Jerusalem. For about from that point to hundred years before that there was this curious tradition that you would take the body after somebody had died, you'd lay it in shrouds and let the body decompose for about a year until the bones were the only thing that remained and you would pick up the bones and put them in a bone box called an ossuary. The belief was that because, and this is important, Because someday the body was going to be resurrected, you needed to keep the bones in a box somewhere for God to find them. Now, it seems a little silly, but it underscores the fact that even the Jews in the first century and just prior to that, they believed in a bodily resurrection. That's why they kept the bones. So when a documentary person says, well, it could have been a spiritual ascension because that might have been consistent. Look, even under Jewish traditions resurrection was understood to be bodily, not spiritual. It wouldn't make much sense because they believed that the spirit might ascend up into heaven, but really when they talked about the resurrection of the dead, it was always bodily. That's the whole purpose. So from the very beginning, the documentary guys have a little bit of a problem. They're talking about a historical practice of collecting bones without making reference to why they were doing it in the first place and trying to skirt the issue by saying, no, it's okay, they could have a spiritual resurrection. Well, if anybody believed that, they wouldn't be doing the practice that led you to this discovery. On this particular ossuary, they found an inscription. In the Talpiot tomb, there were ten ossuaries. And the one that was catalogued and put into the warehouse in 1980, the first one said, Yeshua bar Yosef, Jesus, son of Joseph. And this is the beginning of how you construct the idea that they found the bones of Jesus. Because this was the first ossuary that caught someone's attention and the person who made the documentary, which is Simca Jacobovici, said, wait a minute, if you found a Jesus son of Joseph, isn't that Jesus of Nazareth? Who else did you find in that tomb? I'd like to start finding out. They found other names that had inscriptions in the tomb. Out of the ten of them, six had inscriptions and four They say we're blank, but we're going to leave one in dispute. We'll come back to. So here's the way this whole population works. These are the names that they claim are on the other ossuaries that they found. You have the Jesus, son of Joseph, ossuary. Over there in that corner, you see that they found an ossuary written in Hebrew that said Maria, which is a common form of Mary. In fact, in the New Testament, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is referred to as Maria. That was a common name, and that was the name she was given Then you have this person over here named Yosa or Yosi or Josa or Josie, depends on how you're saying it, which is a diminutive or a nickname form, a shortened form of Joseph. Then you have this person named Judah, not really sure who he was when they found him. You have a guy named Mattia, which is Matthew. All of these are written in Hebrew, by the way. You have some other blanks, which we'll come back to, that are represented by this question mark here. And then you have this one, the only one they found that was inscribed in Greek, and on the Greek inscription, it had the word Maryamne. That's the claim that's made, Mariamne," a Greek form of Mary. So this is what began kind of the thought. If in 2006, when they began doing the research, Simca's idea was, wait a minute, you discovered all of these in 1980 and nobody cared? Nobody made any attempt to inquire? You guys might be sitting on the biggest discovery of all time, and we heard the filmmakers in their interviews last week, so if you want to reference that, you can check that back. So what does all this mean? Here's what the filmmakers say it means. If you go back to the first century and identify all of the names that are available in the first century, what do the names and their probabilities come out to? Jesus, fairly common name, all right? In this case, though, because we have a Joseph, who's his father, a Jesus son of Joseph, they came up with the odds of there being a Jesus and a Joseph is 1 in 190. So they came up with that probability. They said that Maryamne by itself is such a unique name, and for it to be written in Greek on on an ossuary is unique. They assigned it 1 in 160. Matya is a fairly common name. It's about the ninth most common Jewish name, so they gave it about one in 40 chance that you would find that. Yosa or Yosi is a much more common name because it's a shortened form of Joseph. So that's why they only give it a 1 in 20 name and Maria or Mary was so common in the first century that probably 25 percent of the women walking around were named Mary or Maria or Miriam or some form of Mary that we, tra- we would translate as Mary. Just based on the statistics and the number of ossuaries found in one tomb, which by the way, they presume to be, and probably correctly so, that this had to be a family tomb, to say, what are the chances that you would have a family that had these names in it? Put them together. Here's the statistics. Taking out Matthew, because they don't know who Matthew is, they decided to just leave him out. And notice they don't have anybody else in there. So now you're just talking about the odds that there's a Jesus who's a son of Joseph, who's in a tomb with somebody named Mary who's in a tomb with someone named Yosah or Yossi, and someone named Maria, the odds of that not being Jesus of Nazareth is one in 2,400,000. That's the odds. Under this statistical analysis, it's virtually a certainty that this is the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. But the filmmakers say to be more conservative, we're going to actually reduce the number down for you. Just to take into account unintended biases. They take the 2,400,000 divided by four, and they say the chances are one in 600,000 that it's not him. And then they further divide that by the number of tombs and ossuaries that have been located to even bring it down lower. And at the end, they say the chances that this is not Jesus of Nazareth that we found is only one in 600, okay? The mathematics was done by the University of Toronto, the head of their statistical analysis. He's a math teacher, and does statistics. In the movie, as some of you guys saw, he's probably the only guy left alive who uses a blackboard. He's up there like, you know, doing this dramatic scene (laughs) using a blackboard, all this stuff, which I'm sure he did it all in a computer. It would have been easier, but no, he had to do it with chalk because that looks more professorial in a movie, right? Okay, so what does that mean? One in 600,000, I'm sorry, one in 600 that this is not Jesus. That means that The way that they're saying you read it is there's a 599 out of 600 chance that this is the bones of Jesus of Nazareth. Let me give you some critical analysis. This is their claim. I've set it up. Let me tell you what I think of the documentary and why we can take it apart. And this is based on all the information that's floating around out there. And like I said, if you want to follow line by line through the documentary, I have it in Windows Media format. You can see it. (laughs) You can see the transcript of the documentary and all of my notes from all the different scholars that are weighing in, including my own kind of lawyerly evidentiary views are in there. Here is some criticism. First of all, I think the filmmakers begin with a conclusion. They drive every assumption towards that conclusion. This has been highly criticized, not just by Christian scholars, but by all the secular archaeologists that are watching this. Some of them are outright furious over this method because it makes archaeology seem like it's you know the real world or something okay they make it into kind of like a reality show as opposed to a science they're mad because this was not published in a journal for peer review and allowed to be vetted by people they just announced it and put it on a you know had a press release had a big press conference and then launched the movie I think it's fair to say that the filmmakers do have a conclusion they believe this is the tomb of Christ and they're going to drive every conclusion towards it. I say that not because I think that my faith demands I say that. That's probably true. I don't believe it's Jesus in there. But I say that because after analyzing the actual language of the documentary in depth, it's clear that at every point there were numerous ways you could interpret the analysis and they always drove it one way. So they started with the conclusion and got there. Second, there's a real sensationalism about this thing that I think has been criticized and I'm not the first to say this, by the way. A lot of people feel that The sensational nature of the claims, unnecessary tangents in the film. For example, in the film, they make this big to do about breaking into the tomb again and getting in there. Well, there's nothing in the tomb, it was cataloged. You know, I mean, they know what was in there. And when they, by the way, when they get in there, they don't really discover anything. But there's this whole scene where they take up twenty minutes, like putting a snake camera and doing all this stuff. And then, of course, the director himself in this movie is the only director I've ever seen who spends more time in front of the camera than behind it. He is the star of his own documentary. He's always in front. He's the first guy to go in the tomb. He's the guy like cheerleading and rallying everybody. He's the guy that provides all the editorial comment, like everything is like, oh, it's amazing, it's amazing. It's like it's not really amazing. If you look at the statistics on some of the things, they're not that amazing. But he has clearly uh, an interest in driving this. So. There are some tangents. There's film techniques used, the, not the least of which is these dramatic recreations. One of my favorite is where they're explaining that Mary Magdalene was an important apostle, and she often taught men. And they have this picture of a very attractive Mary Magdalene teaching a whole group of men. And in the distance, you see Jesus kind of nodding, you know, like, oh, this is good, you know? <laughs> totally out of fabric. I mean, there isn't even an account of this. In any of the Gnostic Gospels, let alone the canonical, you know, synoptic Gospels or otherwise, we don't have any of this. But it's in there somewhere because it helps your mind. There's a lot of this kind of that's going on. There's a lot of dramatic recreations of Mary Magdalene holding Jesus' child. Later we're going to talk about how Jesus' son shows up at the crucifixion in one of the dramatic scenes. So there's a lot of this, and it's distracting, distracted, Okay. If you had written an article in a peer journal and you had actually put down all your statistics and your numbers and your findings, other scholars could have weighed in. This, this is kind of a, just like a big docudrama. And if you pin down Simca Jacobovici on this and you ask him why did you put so much dramatic interpretation, he'll say, I'm a filmmaker. But then when you ask him to say, but if you're a filmmaker, why are you presenting scientific information? He'll say, I'm an investigative journalist. And He's been flip-flopping back and forth all week. In one interview, he flip-flopped like three times that I counted between filmmaker, investigative journalist, and filmmaker again. When he needed to be, so can't pin him down. All right, here's another thing. There's almost I wrote down an almost united effort by Christian and secular scholars. They've un- like universally decried the methods employed by the filmmakers. Okay, um, they've they've come after the science behind the claims, and now some of the experts are backing off the claims. I'm not going to say they've recanted. Some of the experts that are featured in the movie have issued statements expressing their anger that they were edited in the way that they were because it makes them sound like they supported things they didn't support. I find that a little tenuous. Actually, from an objective standpoint, the filmmakers didn't twist too much of what the experts were saying. They were somewhat fair in not asking the experts if they agreed, just asking them, I only need one thing from you. Does it actually say that on the box? Yes. Okay, thank you very much. They wouldn't ask them, do you believe that's Jesus? Because the person would have said no. But the filmmakers, you know, they kind of make it clear. We just needed him to to confirm the inscription. Now, he's an inscription expert. That's what he does. He's an epigrapher, or whatever they call them. So that's what he did. So this one, I kind of feel the filmmakers didn't quite do as badly, but some of the experts, oh, and uh, let me backtrack. And when I say they haven't recanted, a lot of Christian evangel- evangelical bloggers are writing that the experts have recanted their views, and that's not true. The number of experts have just clarified their views and said, I don't know that I can reach a conclusion, but I can tell you this is how the math works, or this is what the thing says. But still, there's enough dubious evidence that we're going to see that really, you don't need the experts. It's, it's the filmmakers already have a bias. Here's, a, here's some examples of what I mean by my criticism of the wording. This is from the transcript of the documentary. Here's an example. The narrator says, But according to the Gospel of Matthew, there was another story circulating after Jesus' death. And although the Gospels calls it a lie, it was rumored that Jesus' disciples secretly took their master's body presumably to give him a permanent burial. You catch what might be wrong with this statement? I'll just point some things out to you. In the Gospel of Matthew, there wasn't another story circulating. In the Gospel of Matthew, Pontius Pilate and his people were concerned that the body would be taken. It wasn't that there was a story circulating that the body had been taken. They were recorded to think that the body might be taken, so they took measures to stop it. So that was the source of the story. It's Matthew saying, Pilate, the people, and the Jewish leaders were concerned that we might steal the body. So they put a big stone, a signet ring, seal, and some guards. That's the source of the story. The gospel never calls it a lie. They actually report the story and say they took measures to stop it. The disciples secretly took their master's body, presumably to give him a permanent burial. Why would the people who died for their faith and claiming the resurrection want to permanently bury somebody who's not in the tomb anymore? Here's another one. Given that Jesus was crucified for insurrection, the burial would have been done in secret. You want to pick that one apart? I, I think historically, had he been uh, crucified for inter- insurrection, they would have dumped him over the edge in the trash heap to be burned. That's correct. That the poor people did not have the kind of burials that he had, they would have been thrown into a trash heap or eaten by dogs but here 's a ch- careful trick that the documentary guys love to do, and if you 're not really paying attention to it and you know doing a lot of research, given that Jesus was crucified for insurrection, Jesus was not crucified for insurrection, what was Jesus crucified for? yeah, blasphemy the charge is blasphemy. you can actually read it in the gospel. Caiaphas says we 've heard it from him, he is blasphemed. he must be put to death yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're claiming that he was he was killed because he was going to he was a threat to overthrow the authorities. Okay, and and insurrection meaning like a rebellion, okay, or an overthrow. Okay, in this and right, and in this case though, it interestingly, the documentary filmmakers make the claim that his insurrection, which by the way, he wasn't killed for insurrection, but that he was a threat to the Romans. You think the Romans were threatened by Jesus, who they'd never heard of? Who who did Jesus threaten? He was the, the, the Jewish leaders. Now, it, this is another one of those things where last week I said if you watch carefully the filmmaker's background, he writes exclusively about Jewish issues and Jewish history and Jewish archaeology. He doesn't want to make any claim that would support the fact that the Jews killed Jesus, which has been a problem throughout like all of the ages, right? So when he has the chance, in this subtle five, six words He's intimating, and he does later on in the transcript, he actually uses the word Rome. He's intimating that Jesus was a threat to the Romans. Totally untrue. The other part of the sentence, because Jesus was crucified for insurrection, the burial burial would have been done in secret. All four Gospels record that Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. If you have one of the highest members of the Sanhedrin going to Pilate, which is the local Roman authority governor of Judea or whatever his title was, and said, hey, give me the body. There's nothing secret about that. So again, you have this scene going on on television in front of you where they're sneaking in the middle of the night with his body. And it's like, hey, it's not even historically accurate. This sentence has totally taken us down an assumption that doesn't hold true. Here's another one. Why did we find the name Maria written in Hebrew? on the tomb and not Mary. Their belief, after Jesus' death, Mary continued with his teachings and must have gathered a large following. Okay, sounds okay. I have no problem with that. That's probably historically accurate. In those times of religious transition, the Roman converts also began to follow Jesus. You know, in the early church history, I know there were some Roman converts, but I remember more Romans throwing Christians into lion's dens than openly declaring their allegiance for Mary. And you got to remember, I mean, how old must Mary be? She's his mom. He died at 33. How old is she? How much longer did her ministry last that all these Romans would be coming into the fold, right? And so as her popularity amongst his followers, grew amongst his followers, Mary's name was Latinized from Miriam to Maria. They don't provide any support for that. I don't know if that's even true. I couldn't find any support. You know, I checked all the normal Mary sources like the Roman Catholic Church who seem to have a real good idea of everything about her and I couldn't find any proof of this. Okay, here's just two more just to show you what I'm talking about. This is talking about Mary Magdalene. It says, Previous to that time, women were ordained and in many early Christian writings, Mary Magdalene is highly respected as a missionary. The words early Christian writings are deceptive because what they're talking about are the Gnostic Gospels like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the Acts of Philip, which we're going to analyze a little bit, those are not early Christian writings, at least not Orthodox Christian writings. Those are early Christian heresies. In fact, they're not that early, because most of the writings, the earliest writings we know of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene comes in like the second century. They're not even contemporaneous with the earlier Gospels, and when we did our Da Vinci Code series, we read from those Gospels, and they sounded so silly, we just dismissed them outright there's some stuff in there that's as goofy as you can imagine. Here's another one. Every ossuary discovered in a particular tomb will have the same patina fingerprint. Patina is a residue that begins to form on the outside of the ossuary when it's encased in a tomb. During the documentary, they show this like, image of like, how it begins to patinanize or whatever they call it. I mean, just think of it like oxidation, but it's patina. They say that you can analyze the patina from one and another to determine if they've been in the same ch- tomb. And they use the word fingerprint. When they do DNA analysis later on, I'll talk about it, they bring them together and they say, you see, they had the same patina fingerprint. And you know what, the DNA lab that did the analysis didn't know what it was testing. And afterwards, when it found out, it said, hey, let's clarify something. There's only two things that we can call an exact match. A fingerprint, like an actual human fingerprint, and a DNA match. When we're comparing soils and all those other things, they might have similar characteristics. We might call them consistent, but nowhere would we ever use the word fingerprint because fingerprint to forensic analysis means an exact match like a real fingerprint or DNA where the actual strands directly correlate. So it looks like we got a little bit of fancy work with the wording. Let's go back to our ossuary, Dave. Right, right, and that's one of the things, that's one of the theories that's been advanced is in the end we'll get to that it's probably a multi-generational tomb that lasted over some period of time. The filmmakers say, well, couldn't it couldn't have lasted over too long of a period because the, the, we only know that it lasted for hundred to a, 70 to 100 years of this practice, and by 70 AD, the diaspora happens, if you don't know that ref- historical reference, Jeris- Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the Romans in 70 AD basically, destroy Jerusalem and kick the Jews out. So, at that point, they said the, the, the practice of ossuaries kind of stopped because they were, most of them were in exile. Okay, that's, I think archaeologists agree with that, but still, in 100 years back then in the first century, you could probably fit three or four generations. I mean, the, 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 the length of time was not that long. So, let's go back to this picture of the different ossuaries because it's important that... You look at this one that I have a question mark over. I told you there were four that they didn't have inscriptions on. When they cataloged them at the Israeli Antiquities Authority in the warehouse, there has been a claim that one of them went missing. They didn't know where it was. There's a debate brewing right now over do they have ten or do they have nine. Because most likely when you find an unmarked ossuary, it's nothing really that important. They have about probably a thousand of them. I think they say that they found close to 2,000, but let's just say they found 1,000. Only 20% of the ossuaries found have had names on them. Okay, so they have a lot of unmarked ossuaries. They kind of put them in the back. You know, they don't really care about them. In fact, some people think they just put them in a yard somewhere because it's not that significant. Either way, the debate on whether there's nine or ten left open this possibility, that the 10th ossuary is one that bore the following inscription. James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. According to the filmmakers, if you add that one ossuary and place it in the Talpiot tomb, now you have a Jesus who's a son of Joseph, who has a brother named James, who claims that you know they are brothers, a brother named Yosa, a mother named Mary, somebody named Maryamne, who they say is Mary Magdalene, somebody named Mattia, and this guy named Judah, and they believe that the odds at that point. Of it not being Jesus, jump up to one in 30,000. Because finding the ossuary of James in the Talpiot tomb would be pretty strong evidence that this might be Jesus of Nazareth. This is kind of the big moment. And for some of you who watched it last night, you know that they have a great sound effect in the movie. Like every time something important happens, they go, oh, you know, in the background. So I promise that in this talk, when I edit it down, I'm going to add that same sound effect every time I say something important. <laughs> or have a Sufi yelling in the background like they do, or it's like, "Eh, eh, eh," every time something important happens, okay? So maybe this will be the one CD you guys might listen to, okay? (laughs) One in 30,000, let's analyze that. Here's an analysis of the statistics. In the documentary, Professor Feuerberger from the University of Toronto is the statistician that conducted the math. He's the one that came up with all those numbers you saw just a moment ago. This is the scholar that everybody says is recanting, but he's not recanting. I think that's unfair, and we shouldn't like, jump to conclusions because the Christians want the, you know, this guy to just like confess that he made it up. What he said is the following. I'm quoting from his website right here. He says, "...it is not in the purview of statistics to conclude whether or not this is the tomb site of the New Testament family." Any such conclusion must more rightfully belong to the purview of biblical historical scholars who are in a much better position to assess the assumptions entering into the computations. The role of statistics here is primarily to attempt to assess the odds of an equally or more compelling cluster of names arising purely by chance under certain random sampling assumptions and under certain historical assumptions in this respect, I now believe that I should not assert any conclusions connecting the tomb with any hypothetical one of the New Testament family. Christian scholars have identified this part right here. In this respect, I now believe I should not assert any conclusions as if he's thrown in the towel. He's not throwing in the towel. What he's saying is maybe I shouldn't come to conclusions. That's not my job. My job is to assess the statistics. But What I'd like to show you is what he bases his statistics on and what he believes is important and what's not. This is from his work as well. The results of any such computations are highly dependent on the assumptions that enter into it. So for him to get to these one in 30,000 or even the one in 600 statistics, here are the assumptions. We assume that Maryamne Mu Emara is a singularly highly appropriate appellation for Mary Magdalene. That's the one that I've abbreviated down to Maryamne. We're going to talk about that. We assume that Yosa is highly appropriate appellation for the brother of Jesus, who's referred to as Yosa in Mark 6.3. The filmmakers make a big deal about this, that in Mark the earliest gospel, they keep saying. You know, it's a convenient for them to use the earliest gospel when they need it, and they use the gospel of Mary Magdalene in a 4th century text when they need it. So Mark is the earliest gospel, which they're correct about, that in Mark 6.3, Jesus' brother Joseph is referred to as Yosa, or Yosi, or Yosei. Actually, the right Hebrew saying is Yosei, okay? We assume that the Latinized version of Maria is a highly appropriate appellation for Mary of the New Testament. It is assumed that Yose is not the same person as the father Yosef, who is referred to on the ossuary of Yeshua. Okay, got all those Y's down. And we assume that the present of Matiah does not invalidate the find, although we assign no evidentiary value to it. And we assume that Yehuda, that's the Judah, son of Yeshua, does not invalidate the find, but we ignore it in the computation. The last assumption is contentious. That's probably the understatement of the century. This is written in an open letter to statisticians because so many people bombarded his website trying to redo his computations that he's kind of almost like pulling back on the conclusion and then saying, hey, look, there are assumptions. I understand they're controversial, but I have to factor something and that's my job as a statistician. Okay, give the guy a little credit. But notice the word invalidating. As a lawyer, if there's an invalidating factor... What I'm interested in, if there's a theory that invalidates the research, I want to explore that theory. Because what he's actually saying is, we're giving high weight to Mariamne, We're giving high weight to Yosei. We're giving high weight to Maria being Latinized. We're giving high weight to this Yosei not being Joseph, who's the father of the Yeshua. And we're throwing out Matya, which makes him sound like he's being conservative, but he's not. Because he says... I'm I'm throwing out Matya provided it doesn't invalidate my finding. Meaning, provided I can find a way to explain why there's this stranger named Matya who's not part of the family of Jesus hanging out in the tomb. And they don't even believe he's the, they don't even make the claim that he's the gospel writer. There's a family tomb, he wouldn't be in there. He's not a brother of Jesus. He also talks about this Yehuda, this Judah. What's Judah doing in a tomb? We don't have any recollection or any any story of there being a Judah in Jesus' family. So he's an invalidating factor. So if we can find that Mattia or Judah doesn't belong to the family of Jesus or Maryamne or James, then we got problems. The whole theory falls apart, and that's what we're going to spend a few minutes on right now. How does the theory fall apart? Let's go back in the tomb again. (sighs) (laughs) We're back inside now. Here are the possibilities and why I believe we can start to get rid of these. You're going to need to look at the outline if you really care about the full explanation, because first, I'm not a Hebrew or Aramaic scholar. Second, the explanations are lengthy, and even the top Christian scholars are not able to give the right answers. The top epigrapher and the top name analysts, one's at Harvard, one's in Berlin. Another one's writing from the university in Scotland, I believe. And they're being quoted by everybody because they are the people that you would want to quote. According to the name Mary Omnay, let's start there. There's a big assumption made that because her name is written in Greek, she must be Mary Magdalene. How do we get there? Number one, Mary Magdalene is Mary from the town of Migdal. The filmmakers claim that Magdala was a trade city, so they must have spoken Greek and Aramaic. In the first century, who didn't in that area? So she becomes an important person who spoke Greek, and that's why her name would be known in Greek. That's a little unfounded. The real linchpin for them comes from the fact that the gospel of Mary Magdalene starts to talk about her being an apostle, So they start to look at that longer word that I showed you where it says Maryamne, and then there's like a Maryamnu, Mara, and they start to make something out of that. They say Mara in Aramaic means master, so the way you read this inscription is not Maryamne who is known as Mara, but Maryamne who is the master. So therefore Mary Magdalene, according to the gospel of Mary Magdalene, because she became an important person, some people speculate in the Gnostic tradition, again a heresy of the church that was soundly rejected, that she was the most important and closest apostle to Christ, that's why she would be the master. Of course there's the theory that they're married, which comes out of this from the Da Vinci Code type-esque stuff. And finally, in the 4th century, in the Acts of Philip, there's a reference to Mary Magdalene as the evangelist, the apostle, and she's referred to as Mary Omne. The filmmakers drive home the point that of all the Marys that we knew in the first century, the real Mary Omne that was really famous, that they would have put her name on there, would have been Mary Magdalene because of these Gnostic texts. The problem in the analysis, you'll have to read the scholars. Let's go backwards. In the Acts of Philip, there's a number of Marys. None of them are specifically identified as Mary Magdalene. So while there is a Maryamne in the Acts of Philip, again, a 4th century later writing by a heretical group, not Orthodox Christianity. But even though there is a Maryamne in there, there's also a Maryam, and they're spelled very close. And both of them are discussed. One of them is the sister of Philip, who is the subject of the Acts of Philip. And the word Mary Magdalene doesn't appear in there. There's just an assumption through tradition that she might be the sister of Philip, being Mary Magdalene. No evidence. In the gospel of Mary Magdalene itself, the word Mary is not used. In our New Testament, we don't have any reference to her as Mary So there's been a leap made. They found one expert who's discovered an ancient version of the gospel, I'm sorry, the Acts of Philip. And his theory has always been that the Mary discussed in the Acts of Philip is Mary Magdalene, but he doesn't have any proof for it either. But they use him in the documentary to say, absolutely, Mary Amne is Mary Magdalene. Scholars strongly dispute this, and the people who actually know are saying it's not true. So maybe you cross her out. Now before I move on to cross out some other people, why does Simka Jacobovici have to have Mary Magdalene in the tomb? Why does he have to have Judah in the tomb? Is it because he's trying to prove that Jesus was married and had a son, which, by the way, that's who Judah becomes at the end of this documentary? I don't think that's what he's driving for. I think, like I told you from the beginning, he's got a conclusion and he's driving to it. And if you have a conclusion that this is Jesus, then you have to figure out who these strangers are and you have to assign them some sort of role. So he has to go, I know who it is. It's Mary Magdalene. That's got to make sense. I mean, how many Marys could you have in a tomb, right? Well, according to the first century, one out of 4 are women who were named Mary. You could have a lot of Marys. Let's take a look at this James son of Joseph. Simke Jakovici did a documentary in 2003 about the finding of the James son of Joseph ossuary. In that documentary and since then, what we learned was sometime and they're debating when an ossuary was found somewhere else, they claim. In a city called Silwan. That ossuary stayed in a collector's garage, basically in a storage shed, because he didn't even know what it was. He was—he's a known collector, but he didn't really care to look at it. Eventually, a very famed archaeologist asked to see his collection and discovered that the inscription says, "James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus." This was huge headlines. They put it in a museum. They started saying that they had found the ossuary of James, who is known as the head of the church in Jerusalem, was the brother of Jesus. And everybody kind of touted this. Books were written. Lots of people supported it. The person who found it, his name is Oded Golan, he's on trial right now in Israel for forgery. He's on trial for having forged either the James son of Joseph in its entirety, or if it said James son of Joseph, for adding the words, brother of Jesus. The Israeli Antiquities Authority and their top archaeologists went all over the world in 2005 and 6, telling that they had forensic evidence that it had been forged. The patinas didn't match, and again, this is patina on the same ossuary, not even comparing two of them. That somehow the guy had not carved it correctly. All these different things, so they put him on trial for forgery of antiquities. So right now, the Christian community is running around saying, "Ah, see, it's, it's not even real." After doing the research, I actually believe that they might actually have the real James Ossuary. One of the scholars that I'm citing, who's a Christian scholar and is very noted, he actually supported the findings back in 2003 and still stands by them, that this actually may be the James Ossuary. Now, if you put the James Ossuary in the tomb, that really tweaks things. But here's what I want to point out, because you're going to hear this. I believe that in the end, in the trial, whether they find that Oded Golan forged it or not is not important. I believe he probably didn't forge it. The evidence looks like he didn't. There's lots of people weighing in on it. I mean, experts. But it looks like even the Bible Archaeological Society and some noted Christian scholars are saying, it's not a forgery. We think he found the real one. But it wasn't in the tomb. It wasn't at Talpiot. There were six with names and four that were blank. Everybody, including the Israeli archaeologists who discovered and documented the site, claimed that the other four were blank There was no inscriptions on any of them, and you just cannot be, you know, it wasn't like it was caked in mud, you didn't see it. I mean, they actually go through them and check them out. They were blank. So the filmmakers, especially the one who had done the 2003 documentary, has a great interest in bringing that tomb into Talpia because that would make a strong case that it's Jesus' tomb. The scholars, whether they agree or disagree that it's a forgery, Most of them are absolutely certain, including the archaeologists who documented the tomb, that there was no James Ossuary in there. When you ask the filmmakers, how do you know that the James Ossuary was in there? This is their answer. Well, we know there were 10 Ossuaries. And if you ask for a list today from the Israeli Antiquities Authority of how many Ossuaries are in there, how many they have, they have nine. And again, maybe one sitting as a planter in the backyard. I don't know. But they can find nine. There's debate about that. Some guys are saying, no, we know exactly where it is. But if they knew exactly where it is, they probably would have brought it forward by now. I think they lost one. But it's a far leap to say that we lost one. Therefore, the one that turned up in around 1980 must have been the James Ossuary. In the documentary, they claim that maybe somebody stole it from Talpiot while they were cataloging. You know, maybe they didn't know what it was. Maybe it just kind of, you know, some worker took it to sell it because antiquities are valuable. But there's absolutely no proof whatsoever that because you might be missing one, then the one that must be missing is the James one. The James one was found many miles away in the place where they believe that James was actually stoned according to biblical tradition. I'm reserving judgment. It may not be authentic. Maybe it will turn out to be a forgery. They're still debating. Maybe we'll never know. But the important thing is, Everyone's focusing attention on whether it's a forgery or not, and I think the attention should be focused on, was it in the tomb or not? Who cares if it's a forgery? It's not in the tomb. It doesn't help our case or hurt our case. It's just its a null. Yeah. Basically, they're saying, well, there was one that was unnamed, because it weren't four of them. Four, four unnamed. Okay, so this fourth one that's missing, they're saying that it was James, James Ashworth. Right. But... It, in that case it couldn't have been the ossuary that could be forged because that one actually have on it right now. Well that's the thing they're saying somebody took the blank one and forged it that's one thing. well yeah which would hurt their theory okay or what they're really saying is the fourth one wasn't blank it actually said James son of Joseph and the guy couldn't see it or was so hurried because of the construction but again it, it almost see they paint this picture of like the the archaeologists are working against the clock in the in the tomb they're not doing that they cart them out, they take them back to the lab, and they go through it. In fact, what hurts the filmmakers in this regard is the Israeli Antiquities Authority has said that it cannot say son of, or brother of Jesus, because the carving of son of Jesus has a different patina on the outside of the carving. I mean, think of how microscopic they're measuring, or than on the inside. The archaeologists that are saying it's an authentic one and they're defending Oded Galan, are saying, you guys use such a harsh solvent to clean the outside of the tomb. You rubbed off the patina. And they're charging that those guys screwed up. In the trial this week, actually, it's probably two weeks ago, the Israeli archaeologists for the IAA admitted under oath that, yes, there were fragments, fragments of the patina, the correct patina, on the very inside of the carving. So maybe they, maybe the, the, what that means is evidentiary means maybe they did clean it too harshly and ruin part of the inscription in terms of at least being able to tell the the patina analysis is now going to be flawed. But again, it, it pulls us back to the same filmmaker is going back to his earlier work. It's like, you know, I think you're a little too close to the subject, you know, because you researched this and made a movie a couple years ago. Like, you just kind of, like, you're not making the sequel here, you know? This is not what this is about, where all the ends fit, and we go, wow, that's amazing. That would be a movie. This is supposed to be history. Yeah. Ben? Part of their argument was that the James ossuary had the same patina as the other ones in the tomb. And I know they came up with a couple examples saying other tombs don't match the, you know, the patina in the tomb, so therefore, since the James one does match, it right. must be. But... I mean, it seems like a tomb is probably made out of the same type of stuff around the same era within a hundred years. I mean, how likely is it that two tombs are have the same material? That's a very good question, and I and I admitted that maybe in saying that because um, another proof for why they believe when they when they what what Philip just said is they made this like this leap to conclusion that if one's missing it must be the James. Okay, but what they did in fairness to them was they tested the James ossuary, which was found miles away with the Talpiot ossuaries and compared the patina on them. So presumably, if they were once in the same tomb, they should have the same patina, even if it was stolen and claimed that it was somewhere else. That's when they go to the forensic DNA analysis and they call it a fingerprint, which I was referring to earlier, and they say, it's a fingerprint match. It's not a fingerprint match. They're consistent. So it's not like there's zero evidence that they were ever in the same tomb, but the most that the analysis can say is that the... Patina of this one tomb is consistent with the patina of another. Okay, now if they were right that you can only have one unique patina when you're in, you know, closed up for two thousand years, you would get like a, the same exact type of patina. I think a lot more uh, people would be jumping on that bandwagon. I think most archaeologists go. Uh, I mean, that would be one indication they might be consistent. You're right. The soils may be the same. Um, they've made the claim the soils are different. That the soils in Silwan is different than the one here so if they were really that different you would have noticed it so that must have been in the same one and later got a little contaminated when it lived in the guy's garage I mean you know there's a lot of theories you can make but you cannot say they're identical which is what they've said it's a fingerprint match in the documentary here I'm going it's a match it's a match the 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 lab has issued a statement saying we don't call anything a match except fingerprint and DNA uh, we, we can only conclude that they have similar characteristics and they're consistent, and if you lay down these two mineral analyses, they look very compelling. Okay, But again, you're driving the conclusion. What if you tested 300 other ones and they were a match or a quote-unquote match? They didn't do that because that's another example of where I have a conclusion, I'm going to get to every way and lay down the facts as much as I can, and I'm not saying they have zero evidence, but we don't know that that's conclusive at all. Okay? Yeah? You haven't done DNA to say those genes the bones of James um, confirmed that Mary was the mother of Right. Let me talk about the DNA evidence. Okay. My, my other thing later on for you is for him to make a case if, if, it's, if it's ambiguous whether or not that's James, wouldn't he also try to make that also Joseph? Right. Yeah, let me talk about the familiar relationship DNA evidence too. Okay. They only did DNA testing on the bone residue on two ossuaries. Jesus and Mary They claim that those are the only two ossuaries they could do DNA testing on because the other ones were wiped clean or pretty clean. Now, I believe that probably the James one was wiped clean because it was on display in a museum. Okay, so they probably wiped that thing down pretty good. I don't think you're going to find much residue in there that's going to give them DNA, Okay. But on the Jesus and their Mary Omnia, because they were still cataloged and just sitting in the warehouse, they were able to extract enough DNA to do a test. Now, there's two types of tests. The ideal test is nuclear DNA, where you actually get into the nucleus of the cell and actually compare and get it a real match. There's a secondary form of DNA analysis that you could do if you don't have as good of a sample. And that's where you test for mitochondrial DNA. Mitochondrial DNA is passed by the mother only. So it's almost like a maternally passed on uh, DNA. So when you test Jesus and Maryamne they would say if they were in fact married as we postulate they are there would be no familial relationship between them. Okay? So they do the they have enough DNA to do a mitochondrial DNA analysis and the lab concludes that they are not related so most likely they are husband and wife. Problems with it? That doesn't preclude, I mean, it doesn't preclude a lot of things like Maryam, they could have been married to Yosei, could have been married to James, if James was really there, we don't believe he was, but could have been married to Matya, could have been married to Judah. There's other possibilities, okay? Another problem is, you know, it, just because they were not related, you know, they, you, you didn't test anyone else, which they say they can't, but, you know, it'd be interesting to test against, like, at least Yosei, if not James, and find out, are those guys brothers, because they claim they are. So that's the DNA testing they've done. That's the furthest they say they can get is to conclude that they must be husband and wife. Again, the assumption is they're in a family tomb and if they're unrelated, they must be married. They still have bones and the nation of
1: Israel will not allow them to do DNA
0: testing. It's, it's, they don't have bones. Actually, if they're so old, the bones are gone. The the rules in Israel say that if you have um, a bone fragment or bones you have to bury them. You're allowed to keep the ossuary and study it, but after you do your analysis and do your DNA on the bone, you have to go bury it. In this case, I don't think they found anything. Now. If they had residue and bone fragments that were really small, they did the analysis. They still have the samples, supposedly, so I don't really need any more, but it's never going to be enough to do a nuclear DNA test. Okay? One last point on the James ossuary. In the trial, one of the defenses is, that's going on is that this belongs to Oded Golan. Why is that important? In 1978, Israel passed a law that says, any antiquities we find after 1978 belong to the state. You can no longer have private ownership of antiquities. Well, this tomb was opened in 1980, the Talpiot tomb. If Oded Golan actually possessed James ossuary before 1980, it couldn't have been in the tomb. They've had a former FBI forensic specialist, I don't know why he's in Israel, but he's there as an expert, testifying that there is a photo of Oded Golan with the James ossuary that was taken in the 70s. So forgery or no forgery, it couldn't have been in the Talpiot tomb. Oded Galan has maintained for a while now that he's had it since before 1980. The filmmakers say, well, they they say, well, he said around 1980. I'm pretty sure he's saying before 1978, because otherwise he's going to have to give it up. Now, he might be lying, all right, but you've got all this evidence that seems to be ignored, that you've got a guy who's saying, I've owned this longer than that. You know, some people are saying that he, he, he's lying about the whole thing. Stay tuned, but it still doesn't put the James Oshuary in there. And without that, like, we've got a problem. That's, he's, that's a statistically significant issue. Now, we get to Matiah and Judah. Remember, Matiah and Judah would be invalidating factors if we couldn't put them in the tomb as familial relations. Who is Matiah? Well, they admit that it's probably not Matthew that wrote the gospel. So here's their theory. I'll do it really fast. They believe that in, Ma- in, in Mary's genealogy, there were a number of Matthews before. And If you read the genealogy in Luke, which they claim to have discovered that nobody knows about, it's in Luke chapter 3. Like, these guys are such great archaeologists, they've actually turned a few pages and found it. All right? and, and I know most Christians don't read genealogy, so they've really made a statistically important find. Here's the genealogy of Mary. Some scholars dispute it's actually Mary's, but even if it is Mary's, she has a number of Matthias's, Ma, whatever. So apparently in her family, there must have been a lot of people naming Matthew. That's why you would find this guy in there. We know that Jesus's brothers, were none of, there were four brothers, none of them named Matthew. We don't know of any Matthews. We would have no evidence he's a Matthew. But the best they could say is, well, in her genealogy, people like the name Matthew, so there must have been a Matthew somewhere. I, no support, nothing. I mean, there's like that's just kind of like, okay, sounds good, let's flip a coin. So he could be an invalidating factor. I think he is. I don't think he's in the tomb. I mean, by the way, Matthew is in the tomb, but I don't think he's part of the Jesus family, in other words, okay? Let me just clarify that. He's in the tomb. They got the inscription. Nobody disputes it. But I think he invalidates the statistical findings. All right, who's Judah? Judah. We don't know. We we didn't do any DNA testing. How do you know who was in the box? Now, probably by the name. Give it to you. It's probably a boy, right? Just by the name. So what do the filmmakers conclude? It must be the son of Jesus. You see down here the Judah? That actually says Judah, son of Jesus. And there were only 10 ossuaries found, so there's probably good evidence that this Judah is the son of that Jesus. The documentary... Uh, mentions it in like the last 5 minutes or so it's really strange i would have thought this should be the big reason and they don't make a big deal out of the fact that the ossuary is says son of jesus because there were lots of jesus'es and lots of judas they actually spend their time going off on this tangent talking about how jesus uh, might have been referring to judah as the beloved disciple and this weirdness while he was on the cross I don't know why they did that. It would have been just easier to say, well, look, it says son of Jesus. He must be a son. And if that's Jesus of Nazareth, that's his son. They just kind of skirt around the issue, probably because, again, there's no evidence that there was a son. They had to kind of con- figure out how we can make Jesus have a son so that we can make this the Jesus of Nazareth instead of just a Jesus. So their conclusion is Jesus, of course, that he was married to Mary Magdalene, which, by the way, just as a footnote, the Gnostic Gospels never claim that Mary Magdalene and Jesus were married. Okay, The Gnostics don't even make the, that claim. So I don't, they're getting it from some weird place. Again, probably Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code. So Jesus and Mary Magdalene have a baby. His name is Judah. How do we know that? Well, if you read the book of John very carefully, more carefully than most Christians have read it, in the book of John there is an unnamed beloved disciple. And the beloved disciple turns out to be? Yeah, Judah, the son of Jesus. And we know that because he was such a threat to Rome they say, again he's a threat to Rome like it was the Romans that were all, you know, like Julius Caesar and Augustus were over there going we can get rid of that Jesus we've never heard of. All right, That because he was a threat to Rome they would have kept the child secret. That's why he's the unnamed beloved disciple. And at the end of the documentary as Jesus is being crucified when he says Mary behold your son, He's not talking to his mother. He's talking to Mary Magdalene, who he's saying, behold your son. Like, this would be news to her. She's like, hey, I, hey, son, I want you. we're going to go and see dad get crucified today. Come on. I'm going to go over here and watch him be, like, tortured and get asphyxiated on a cross, okay? So that later he can recognize you as a son finally. Okay, Mary, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. He's like, I didn't know you were my mom. Like, yep. I had to tell you right before I died, Okay. So make sure we're all buried together later. Okay, it's just that Judah is, according to Feuerwerger's own analysis, he could be, an, it could be he probably is. He could be an invalidating factor because in a family tomb we don't know of any Judas that related to Jesus. If there's a Judah, then this probably is not the Jesus family tomb. Couple last notes: Jesus, son of Joseph, sounds big. People who are anthropologists who talk about the way that people lived in the first century have pointed out that Judea and Galilee as two distinct parts of the nation of Israel had different customs. People in Judea were known by their first name and their father. People in Galilee were known by their first name and the city they lived in. That's why in the Gospels Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. That's why we know him as Jesus of Nazareth. It would not have been proper to call him Jesus, son of Joseph, because he was a Galilean. He was a Nazarite. He was not from Judea. Second of all, we also know that Jesus, son of Joseph, if you're a follower of Jesus trying to hide his body, this is an insult. The Gospels only record one time when he's called Jesus, son of Joseph, and that's when the Pharisees are trying to insult him and remind him that he's human. The guy who records it is Luke, who probably knows that he's not the son of Joseph. In fact, he's written about the virgin birth and knows he's the son of God. Other times in Nazareth, he's referred to as, isn't this the son of Mary? And don't we have his brothers and his sisters among us here? He's not referred to as the son of Joseph. This is not a title that Jesus bore. He bore a lot of sons of, son of man, son of, you know, God, but he didn't bore a son of Joseph. And if his followers were the ones doing all this work, they would not inscribe this. So there's further proof this is problematic on all fronts. If you eliminate Mary Omnay because of all the naming and the people who've weighed in and said Mary Magdalene was never referred to as Mary Omnay, James is probably found, but he's found somewhere else where he was actually stoned. So that might be accurate. Macha, some guy we don't know. He's totally unrelated to the family, but he's related to this family. And this Judah we've never heard of and doesn't have anything. And, and there's no reason to believe that Jesus had a wife or a son. This would have been great calculate the odds that Jesus wouldn't be the son of Joseph, all you have is a guy who's named Jesus, who's buried in a tomb with someone named Mary, a guy named Yosei, which is arguably a rare name. It's a rare diminutive. So they make a big deal out of it. And it is the experts who even disagree with the movie say, yeah, it's fairly rare, but it's still a diminutive of Joseph. Maybe that's who he's the son of. I mean, maybe these two are, maybe that's his father. Maybe. And you notice in Feuerwerger's statistics, he says that we have to take into consideration that the Yosei the Yose that's buried is not the Yosef that he's the son of. That's an assumption they make in the statistics. Well, I don't know that we can make the assumption. There's no evidence of that. There was, no, there was no testing. We don't know. So if you just have a Mary, a Jesus, and a Joseph, then you have a first century family of Smiths and Jones. That's all you have. We have a couple Johns hanging out somewhere. That's it. There's nothing statistically significant about the sample, including Judah, Mattia, all those people. They're just common names of the first century. It's only when you attribute unique things to them, and then have to prove them that they become statistically significant. Finally, if we walk out of the tomb now that we're leaving the thing behind, and you look and you say, Why in the end would all these people in the Gospels go to their deaths, proclaiming a resurrection? When there's a tomb with this big ornament on it that everybody knows is sitting there, that people could say, That's the tomb of Christ. Wouldn't the Jewish authorities who were so intent on keeping the tomb sealed have said, What are you talking about? He's in there. Wouldn't the Roman authorities, whose authority was violated by the very resurrection because they thought it was a break-in, wouldn't they have interest to find this thing? Would all those people be crucified, stoned, hung upside down, all those things, for a tomb that's sitting in plain sight in the old city with a big chevron on it and a dot? I don't know. It makes no sense. And that's where it leads us into next week. Next week we're going to be talking about some of the evidences for the resurrection. Why are Christian scholars and even non-Christian scholars so convinced that there's historical evidence for the resurrection? But we're going to work on eyewitness and circumstantial evidence and kind of build a case now that we can at least put this aside. If you want details about some of these things, I expect by the end of this week I'll have the entire transcript annotated. If you want just to see the film because you didn't see it, I'll have it, I have it on CD. If you want to actually just read the naked transcript without any of my annotations or the scholar's annotations, you can do that too. And if you want the full thing, it's going to end up being about 50 pages of notes and different things. And it goes into detail. But like I said, there are so many errors in this thing that I felt like you almost had to go by a word-by-word analysis and zero in on all the things and show how they keep funneling and funneling and funneling to a result that really doesn't make sense in the end. So that's kind of the uh, analysis of the Jesus tomb. Let's pray and do a little bit of worship, and then I'd be happy to talk to you guys about this tonight and what it is. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to know that we have a reasoned faith that isn't just based on conjecture. I want to know that it withstands scrutiny. And an exercise like this, Lord, I believe, even though we take time out from focusing and worshiping you and actually building up things that are edifying to our souls and our minds, this at least exercises our faith and reminds us that we do have that reasoned faith. That you're not calling us to just blind obedience. That even though you ask us, Lord, to believe in those things that are unseen and that we're blessed for doing that, that there still is a reason for our hope. As you tell us in 1 Peter, Lord, that we are to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And doing so with gentleness and respect, and I appreciate, Lord, the number of scholars that you have blessed with wisdom who are debating this topic, who are putting forth information, and doing so in gentleness and respect. Keep your people constrained and restrained, Lord. Don't let them turn into the blaring idiots and the talking heads that so often take on in debates like this. Lord, I pray for the people who will be commenting on this this week and who are researching this and who will be writing books and who will be doing more analysis. Lord, secular and Christian, I pray for all of them so that we might show the world that this is really just not the Lord that we worship, that you are resurrected and risen, Lord. Lord, We, uh, we praise you for that. Pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.